Let's look now as we are focusing on Jehoshaphat, our first little-known woman of the world, and we're going to look at something that she was faced with that could have stopped her in her tracks. Because often when we face fear, we do one of three things. We either fight it, we flee from it, or we freeze. What do you do in the face of your fears? That's the whole focus of the lesson today. What do you do in the face of your fears? Sometimes it's appropriate to do um, a lot of these. It's not like we always have to fight the fear and fight through it because, well, sometimes we need to flee the snake. I won't talk about other things that were mentioned on some of the tables today. So we're going to look today at 2 Kings 11, and that's where we will learn the story of Jehoshaphat and her impact on world history. Because here is how she impacted it. Without her, the birth line of David that was running from David to the Messiah would have vanished without her. See, God promised that David's seed would forever reign. And if she had not acted, that would not have happened. The entire history of the world would have changed. And she's basically ignored in history. We don't have her in the list of women heroes of the Bible. See, she's kind of been ignored, but we want to expose her today. This story is filled with breathtaking, heart-pounding moments. It's intrigue. It is murder. Uh, it is really one of those stories that you, you, you want to watch, watch on the big screen, but at the same time, you're going to close your eyes and not want to look at the screen. So let's take a look at it. I'm going to read the whole story to you from the Bible, and then we're going to unpack it. Sometimes I go verse by verse, and we talk, but we're going to do the whole thing so you can get this story. So let's begin with 2 Kings 11, beginning verse 1. Athaliah was the mother of Ahaziah. When she saw that her son was dead, she took over. She began by massacring the entire royal family. But Jehoshaphat, but Jehoshaphat, daughter of King Jehoram and sister of Ahaziah, took Ahaziah's son Joash and kidnapped him from among the king's sons slated for slaughter. She hid him and his nurse in a private room away from Athaliah. He did not get killed. He was there with her, hidden away for six years in the temple of God. Athaliah, oblivious to his existence, ruled the country. In the seventh year, Jehoiada, now that, remember, is Jehoshaphat's husband, the priest, sent for the captains of the bodyguards and the palace security force. They met him in the temple of God. He made a covenant with them, swore them to secrecy, and only then showed them the young prince. Then he commanded them, These are your instructions. Those of you who come on duty on the Sabbath and guard the palace, and those of you who go off duty on the Sabbath and guard the temple of God are to join forces at the time of the changing of the guard and form a ring around the young king, weapons at the ready. 
Kill anyone who tries to break through your ranks. Your job is to stay with the king at all times and places, coming and going. The captains obeyed the orders of Jehoiada, the priest. Each took his men, those who came on duty on the Sabbath and those who went off duty on the Sabbath, and presented them to Jehoiada, the priest. The priest armed the officers with spears and shields originally belonging to King David, stored in the temple of God. Well armed, the guards took up their assigned positions for protecting the king from one end of the temple to the other, surrounding both altar and temple. Then the priest brought the prince into view, crowned him, handed him the scroll of God's covenant, and made him king. And how old is he? Seven years old. As they anointed him, everyone applauded and shouted, Long live the king. Athaliah heard the shouting of guards and people and came to the crowd gathered at the temple of God. Astonished, she saw the king standing beside the throne, flanked by the captains and heralds, with everybody beside themselves with joy. Trumpets blaring, Athaliah ripped her robes in dismay and shouted, Treason! Treason! Jehoiada, the priest, ordered the military officers, drag her outside and kill anyone who tries to follow. The priest had said, don't kill her inside the temple of God. So they dragged her out of the palace's horse corral. There they killed her. Jehoiada now made a covenant between God and the king and the people. They were God's people. Another covenant was made between the king and the people. The people poured into the temple of Baal and tore it down, smashing all the altar and images to smithereens. They killed Matan the priest, the priest of Baal, in front of the altar. Jehoiada then stationed sentries in the temple of God. He arranged for the officers of the bodyguard and the palace security along with the people themselves to escort the king down the temple of God through the gate of the guards and into the palace. There he sat on the royal throne. Everybody celebrated the event, and the city was safe and undisturbed. They had killed Athaliah with the royal sword. Joash was seven years old when he became king. Wow, are you ready for your bedtime snack? <laughs> Is that some kind of story or what? Now let's look at it. This cast of characters can get so confusing. And I thought, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Is I can't, I can't kind of relate all these people to you. So I found this uh, genealogy here. So let's look at what the deal is. So I, this is so important for us to look at the Israel side and see that Jezebel is a part of this royal line. Ahab and Jezebel gave birth to Ahaziah. Ahaziah and Athaliah. And that, that is how they got connected to Jehoram, which was on the Judah side. And so you see that there is a connection. Here is what it is. Jehoshaphat, our heroine of the story, is the daughter of King Jehoram. So you see him on the chart. His wife, Jehoshaphat, is the wife of the high priest, Jehoiada. 
And she's the half-sister of Ahaziah. Do you see her over there? Ahaziah. She's the wicked. Uh, he's the wicked king of Judah. And then do you see the half of uh, the stepdaughter of Athaliah? She's the stepdaughter of Athaliah. Do you see that? And she's the step-granddaughter of Jezebel. So look at those three names in red. Jezebel, Athaliah, Jehoshaphat. So she was influenced in her life by those who worshipped Baal. That's, the, that's how she grew up, in that kind of home, that kind of atmosphere. Her nephew is Joash. She is a righteous woman of God. Now let's look at uh, Queen Athaliah had been brought up to worship Baal. She brought that from Israel into Judah when she married Jehoram. So Baal worship was brought into Judah. This is when there's been a split of the two kingdoms. We're in the southern kingdom, and it is called Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. So she brought it there. And she taught her son, Ahaziah, to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. So we have an evil queen mother who taught her evil to her son. Now, this story is set in 841 B.C. in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. And this story opens when King Ahaziah, who is Jehoshaphat's brother. Now, I'm going to tell you what. Y'all don't need to get bogged down in all that, okay? I'm just going to read it, but I know some of you are trying to make the chart, trying to make the map, and connect the people. And you, okay, that's what you're going to do when you go home for the rest of the week. But for now, and Brenda Major's not here, is she? Because she would absolutely be having a fit and a bad spirit. But she likes to get it all lined up. So she'll have to do that at home. Okay, so uh, so now, so this is the, she, you see Jehoshaphat is related to these evil people. And so when Athaliah now becomes the queen mother, after she heard of her son's death, she declares genocide on all the males in the kingdom. Because she wants the power. She wants the control. Because she wants to continue the Baal worship in Judah. So do you see this is certainly a story between good and evil. It's a story between God and the gods of Baal. And so we want to see how this is going to happen. That that strong force of evil is overtaken. And so imagine this scene. Jehoshaphat has heard what is happening. She has heard what is going on in the royal palace. Put yourself there. I'm going to walk us through how this might have been because what most of this chapter is not about Jehoshaphat. Most of this chapter is about what happens after Jehoshaphat did her main act. And so I want us to, to expand verses 1, 2, and 3 with our imagination. And we are going to pretend that we are Jehoshaphat. And we're going to see how we might have acted in the same situation. So she must have been gripped by fear as she realized that Athaliah's death march was happening against her own nephews. Can you imagine that kind of fear? Now, always when we're in a moment of fear, we want to see what we do with the fear, what we do with the stress. We can use it for good or we can use it for bad. 
and we want to see what we might have done and what she did. So what's happening inside of her? There's stress. There is anxiety. There is a racing heart. There are palpitations. We never want to assume that a person dealing with stress who deals with things very well just doesn't have any of those symptoms. She has the same things that we would have going on in our body in the face of this kind of fear. Now, what is she going to do with it? Is she going to have the flight response of her fear and run and hide in the royal bedroom? See, that is an option, isn't it? Is she going to freeze in the middle of the royal home and become motionless, inert? That is an option for her. No. She faced the fear and she chose to fight. She took matters in her own hands. Sounds very much like Abigail, doesn't it? It sounds very much like Shafara and Pua, doesn't it? Took matters in her own hands. She took a deep breath, I have no doubt. Don't know how to teach that. She went, she breathed out. I am sure she said a prayer. And she regained her clarity. Because that's what we do when we're facing fear and we want to work through it. And she remembers now where Joash's room is. She remembers the hallway where the children are located. And she knows that it is at the opposite end of the palace from where they are conducting their searches now. She hears the screams echoing through the palace. Don't you know that that just about paralyzed her with the fear? But she knew that time was critical. So with sharp focus, she rushes to the young prince's room, hoping to beat the soldiers there. She tries desperately not to think about what would happen if Athaliah found out of her betrayal. She enters the room, and there she finds the nursemaid. She finds the baby sleeping soundly. She ushers the nurse and the baby down the hall. I imagine she's stopping at every doorway and she is checking. She is pushing them up against the wall. She is protecting them. She is hiding them. Don't you know every moment she is fearful that the baby is going to scream and cry and give them away. She's concerned that the nurse may shout out and not go along with the plan. <clears throat> She continues, step by step. Finally, she reaches what scripture says is a private place, a private room. She is safe now from the wrath of the queen. She's thinking, though, about the next step. And she knows she cannot keep him in an evil home. She knows she has to take him where evil will not find him. She thinks and she thinks. And she realizes there is only one place where evil will not go. And that is the temple of the Lord. After waiting in the cover of night, all three sneak out of the palace grounds and head toward the temple. Just like a fairy tale, Jehoshaphat rescued this son of promise. This was God's promise to continue the line of David. She rescued him from that wicked witch who was about to destroy him. Jehoshaphat 
hides Joash in the only place that he would be safe, and that is in the presence of God. Does the story have more meaning once we look at the actions that Jehoshaphat took and follow the stress that she must have endured and how we admire her even more that she continued to act in the face of fear? Now that's a summary of only the first three verses. The boy was hidden there in the palace of the, in the house of the Lord for six years. And during that six years, Athaliah was reigning. She was the only queen of Judah ever. And she was reigning ruthlessly over the land of Judah. Well, Jehoiada continues to be the priest in the house of the Lord. And, and he and Jehoshaphat are bringing up the boy. They are training him. They're filling him with knowledge of who God is because they had to redo what had been taught to him at six years old. And so they had to train him in the ways of the Lord. And during that time, I imagining, imagine they were thinking about the appropriate time to reveal the truth that there was still one member of the royal line alive. It is in the seventh year that Jehoiada has come up with a plan. He organizes a coup. He did this first by showing the leaders of the country who were against Athaliah that Ahaziah has a surviving son. So imagine that meeting. Imagine the plans that went into that. Imagine the prayers that must have been take, taking place. Uh, so that he would be prepared to show these and trust that God was going to use these people to keep the secret until it could be revealed. And the moment came when he was ready to announce, blow the trumpet. And Ahaziah, uh, blow the trumpet, that Ahaziah's son was still alive and he was going to be the new king. And so he made the announcement. Can you imagine the ceremony that was taking place? Imagine going behind the scenes. We've seen all the pictures of what happens in the royal family of England and when they are having a big moment. And we see what happens. People are getting dressed. and There's all kinds of speculation. And there's the moment we're all waiting for. And then the trumpet sounds. And that's what was happening there. And he announced, we have a new king. Imagine this little boy. I have He's seven years old. I have a little seven-year-old grandson. And I imagine him. I mean, he could be a king. He's got a star. He's cute. And so, and so that the people then, he has, him, he has the announcement. And the people shout, God save the king. God save the king. And so remember, he is in the palace. I mean, he is in the temple of the Lord. And the palace is away from it. But off of him. Imagine what's going on there. Imagine what she is feeling and experiencing when you talk about stress, when she hears a threat. A threat is coming to her. Her greatest fear is losing control. Her greatest fear is losing power. And she hears, God save the king? What in the world does that mean? She heard it and she dashed over to the Lord's temple. She saw everyone there around this young king 
And remember, I love the plan Jehoiada had to surround him. That circle that was surrounding that young boy. The trumpeters were joy rejoicing. Everybody was singing and dancing and shouting. And if you've never seen the Middle East and how they celebrate and dance, they have their own beautiful way of dancing. That is happening everywhere. Can you imagine Athaliah's uh, experience when she saw that? And she saw it and she stopped and she screamed as loud as she could, treason, treason. However, Jehoiada was ahead of her in the plan, wasn't he? Jehoiada, the priest, had already planned to kill her. He already had everything in place to handle the situation. And so he, uh, he knew that he had to remove her. And so he had to remove her away and anyone who was with her. And so he ordered all of the guards to take her and anybody who was a follower of her. And, we, and they knew that she was going to try to escape. And she would try to run. And he had a plan for that too. And they stopped her and they killed her. We don't like to read about that. But that's what would happen when God had to get control of his kingdom. He had to remove evil. And that was the way to do it. And so she was killed. At that time, we read that Jehoiada made a new covenant. Now, that's a promise uh, with God between all the people there and the king and the Lord. He made a promise. And uh, he, he says that we are going to give this country back to the Lord. And we are going to fall under the lordship, the guidance, the direction of the one true God. And so the people <clears throat> shouted. They praised God. They were ready to worship the one true God once again. And their first action, and the first action of that little seven-year-old, is to tear down the temple of Baal. And so they went and destroyed it. They smashed their alt the altar down. Matin was the name of the priest of Baal, of that altar, of that temple. And they tore it down. They demolished all the idols. Uh, within the place. And they, they destroyed any, any kind of symbol of Baal worship. Uh, they put Matin to death because such worship was not going to be tolerated in the land of the Lord anymore. And Jehoiada had all the guards po posted around the temple. Athaliah now has been slain. The temple has, a Baal has been destroyed. And the people are rejoicing because there is finally peace in their land. And young Joash is seven years old. He was now moved from the, the temple of the Lord into the king's palace. And the people could now get a glimpse of hope because there was bold action taken on the part of the people of God. Now let's look to see what happened um, after that. We learn in chapter 12 uh, that um, what what was going to come. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash began his kingly rule. He was king for 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother name, name, mother's name was Gazelle. Now, this is the first we've heard of mother. We don't know where she was when there was uh, the murder going on, but we know she was spared. And so what we begin to then think about, okay, so there's the mother... And then there is Jehoshaphat, and there's Jehoiada. And it seems that the three of them, along with all the other people of God in the temple of God, were there to bring up that boy, 
to pour into him that he didn't have a father. Father had been executed, but he had a mother, and he had another mother uh, in Jehoshaphat, and then he had Jehoiada, and they were supporting him and loving him and caring for him, and I couldn't help but think, isn't that what happens today? It's not just mom and dad. We had a single mother here. We have a single mother in Gazelle. And look at all the support and the love that she uh, had around her to bring up this boy in godly ways so that he could reign for 40 years. Taught and trained by Jehoiada the priest, Joash did, and we love to read these words, what pleased God for as long as he lived. Wouldn't that be a wonderful epitaph for all of us? Because the opposite is, and she did evil in the sight of the Lord. Because we read that frequently in Scripture too, don't we? But Joash pleased God for as long as he lived. Oh, yes. Uh, so Joash was a righteous king and tore down all symbols of evil and idol worship. Now, instead of, of using his evil birth to influence him, he had godly support. So I think one of the encouraging takeaways we have from this story is whether we're a mother, a single mother, whether we're a widow, whether we're single, a grandmother, we can play a vital role in the lives of children. That's one of the things we want to look at here, how we all can play a role in bringing up children. Lord knows we need all the help we can get. That's why we have biblical instruction through the church. That's why we have intentional spiritual training and spiritual growth uh, under guidance of those who, who are willing to work in Sunday school and in our, our uh, kids' worship programs and in BBS because we want to go, go alongside a family and bring up children. That's what happened here in this story of Joe Ash. Well, we know the reason this is so important because this is what was happening in the days of, of Joash and are still happening today. It's found in 1 Peter 5, 8. The Bible says we have an enemy who prowls around us like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that's what was happening in the days of Joash. And that's what's happening in our time. Look at what happened in the life of Jehoshaphat who was raised... Uh, under the guidance and direction of people who were worshiping Baal and many other idols. And she stood up against that, moved away from that. Joash did, was, uh, was formed under the guidance and direction of godly people because they knew there was someone like a roaring lion looking to devour him. He was one of Judah's best kings his later years sadly saw this decline in the country. You know, we go through those periods in all countries where we have uh, we, a seemingly upright and, and morally driven country, and then it starts to swing in the other direction. And I always say the pendulum can, pendulum can only go so far when it has to begin to swing back. And this is what happened with Joash. His rule helped the pendulum to swing back to a godly nation. And then near the end, that pendulum started to get, it started to move back. It moved away back toward evil because influence was strong. And so morally and politically, 
there was a lot of um, decline in the, in the country. He was eventually sass assassinated by some of his close relationships. Uh, those in his kingdom ended up killing him. So let's dig into Jehoshaba and see why we love her and why we admire her. See, she lived in some of the darkest days of southern kingdom's history in, in Judah. It was time of, of real cruelty. cruelty. There was gross immorality. There was profane temple worship. And she grew up in an environment saturated with evil. And the, and the God of the scripture was rejected. How did she do it? But she stood up against the culture of the day. Is that what we're doing? Aren't we trying our best to stand against the culture of the day that tells us either we're not enough, we need to be more, or we need to jump on this bandwagon or that bandwagon? She stood apart. She, she left it. She left her family, her friends, and she chose to, uh, chose to serve God. We do not know all the circumstances that led to that. But what we do know is she left it and separated from her family. And here's an important takeaway. Your family heritage does not dictate who you will become. Your family heritage does not dictate who you will become. That's great hope for people that didn't grow up in an environment that Joash began to have when he was seven. Uh, not everyone grew up that way. And so it doesn't dictate who you will become. Both Athaliah and Jehoshaphat shared this family heritage. See, they were stepsisters. Athaliah, the wicked queen, and Jehoshaphat, our hero of the story, shared the same family heritage, grew up in the same cultural surroundings. But their paths were completely different. Athaliah chose darkness. Jehoshaphat chose light. Jehoshaphat purposely chose to align herself with God. The Bible does not tell us how it happened, but we do know she came to marry Jehoiada. Can you imagine anything so far from what her culture had been but to marry the priest in the temple of God? We don't know. I haven't written that scenario. I, try, I can't figure out how that would have happened. It would be wonderful to explore it and to dig into that research to see how it happened. But here's what we know. She came from one of the vilest kingdoms and married a man of God's own choosing. And together, they became a part of God's sovereign plan to save the line of David. Isn't it wonderful how God works and how it takes willing people to work out that perfect plan? See, we also see that her actions made it possible then for the Savior to be born in that line. He, he, Joash was the last living heir. He was the youngest one. He was the baby. He was the last one she was able to save. She showed bravery, compassion, faith. And you know, I think she deserves to be in that list uh, of, of the heroes of the Bible that saved the line like Ruth. Ruth did it. Tamar did it. They're listed in Matthew in the line of Jesus and um, so she's not in the line of, of Jesus directly because she is the aunt in the situation but she deserves to be noted as a hero of the Bible. Uh, their actions, Jehoshaphat and Jehoiada who worked together on this 
brought good kings back to Judah. So here's what happened in the line that was to come. Not just those 40 years Joash was there, but for 178 years, there was, uh, there was the kind of rule in Judah that pleased God. There was only one period in there. It was a 16-year reign of Ahaz that where the, uh, the king did not serve God. But for most of that 178 years, see, that's the impact. Their boldness, their cur uh, courage, how that impacted the world. Uh, now, despite having a horrible grandmother, Jezebel, and an even more horrible stepmother, Athaliah, she became a righteous woman of God. It's that reminder that uh, we don't have to allow the choices of our family to affect who we are at great personal risk. Probably she was, she was risking her own life. She could have been executed for what she did. She takes this bold action to save that baby, Joe Ash. And here's, what, here's what's amazing. She didn't have much time. It wasn't like it was announced three weeks earlier. <laughs> I, will be, I have a plot and I'm going to be killing all. That there was no time to react. She, she was in the moment. The Latin for that is in media race. That's what it means. In the middle of the action, she is there. No time to dilly-dally. No time to wring her hands. No time to run to her counselor to find the preacher. There was no time for that. It was her alone with God. At the spur of the moment, she had to act. This is how we found Abigail. It's how we found Shafara and Pua. In the middle of action, they were ready. Because what had gone on before in their lives prepared them for the moment they were called to act. That's where we all find ourselves on any day. Whether it's a, a major situation like saving a king or saving a reputation. We're all called upon to act. And we want to, <clears throat> to be ready for it. We have that same ability to choose. She uh, reminded me of the situation in The Sound of Music. Oh, perhaps my favorite movie. Uh, remember when the family was hiding from the Nazis in the graveyard? Remember when she was trying to keep the children quiet? Imagine that kind of stress. And she had a whole a slew of kids, didn't she? She was trying to keep quiet. That moment of stress when we're called to act. Now imagine you in the same scenario. You uh, have a family to protect. You have a family after you. Not just enemy soldiers, but family members. And how do you react in the face of fear? Whether faced with a life or death situation as Jehoshaphat was, or facing the fear you wrote down, do you flee, fight, or freeze? We want to look at that and what we can do to strengthen our resolve when we're facing our fears. You know, many times we're faced with difficult situations and we, we have a hard time moving through them. 
because fear grips us. And when it grips us, our emotions begin to take full control. It begins to take full control of our minds. And it is what prevents us from going forward to meet the challenges, whatever they are. We made a whole list of them. And we begin to worry whether or not the plan will work out, whether or not we can do it. Um, I, I might be thinking, oh, I, I've, I've never tried this, so why would I try it now? I've done this before. It didn't work out so well. I'm not going to do it anymore. An important lesson we learn from here, from this story, is to keep our focus on God and not our circumstance, no matter what fear we face. Then we're fully equipped to move forward. There was this renowned neuroscientist whose name was Joseph Ledeau. Now he suggests that the difference between fear in humans and in animals is that we, we humans, experience fear as a feeling. See, animals don't have feelings. They don't get their feelings hurt. Animals don't have the feelings that we have going inside of us. And so here is, uh, this is just a beautiful image he creates uh, for uh, imagining our fear inside of us. And he uses the example of making soup. And so here is, is what he says. Our soup of, of fear have a lot of different ingredients. It has our thoughts. It has our memories. It has our predictions. It has whatever's going on in our body. It has our emotions. And all of those are a part of our fear soup. It's all a huge mix of stuff. See, animals don't have that. It's either I'm gonna run toward the lion or away from it, or I'm freezing. That's all they do. We put a whole lot of stuff in, in the middle of our fear soup. So um, how, how would things be different if we begin to look at our soup and all the ingredients in our soup to determine what the strongest flavor is? So think about that for a moment and decide what is the strongest flavor in your fear soup when you are facing whatever it is you wrote down. Is it your thoughts? Is that what's driving everything in your moment of fear? Is it your emotions? Is it what's going on in your body? Is it your worry? Is it anxiety? Or is this in your fear soup mix? A dose of scripture? Your own determination not to let it get the best of you? Your ability to reason? Is prayer added to the mix? Whichever one of those has the biggest dose will determine the outcome of your fear situation. I wonder what was in Jehoshaphat's soup. 
that for just a second. What was in her response? She acted, didn't she? She moved forward. There must have been a big dose of God in there, wasn't there? There must have been a big dose of, of determination. I will not let her destroy the royal line of David. It will not happen on my watch. I don't care what happens to me. I'm saving that baby. Do you think that she began, though, with a moment in the hallway of just a little bit in her fair suit, a little bit of worry, just a little bit, that, oh dear, what is happening now? Oh, this is not going to end well. Do you think she could hear the rumblings around the palace of the evil queen? Do you think she worried for just a minute about when the queen might arrive? I think she did. I think that had to go through her or she would not have had a motivation to act. See, people who act in the face of fear in such a positive and strong way do it not because they never had a moment of concern and fear and worry and anxiety. It's because they sorted through it and they, and they covered up that ingredient with something stronger. See, worrying can be a really helpful tool to help us find solutions to the problem. But if she had continued to live in that worry, she would have become doom-laden. And she would not have used her imagination. One of the greatest gifts God has given us is our imagination, our creativity, to turn those what-if questions into what if I did this? How could that change the future? You know, she may have examined the what ifs for a long time. See, she knew for six years, that, uh, for, for many years, how, how, how Athaliah lived her life. She grew up with her. Can you imagine? All the time she had to think and plan, this crazy woman, what's she going to do next? Look at what she's doing to Judah. This is not what the Word of God says should happen. What we need to do is, haven't we done that? Haven't we all sat around the table? Listen here. What we say, if I were queen, I would. Now, how many of you said that? I had a friend back in when I was in a choir in another church, and uh, the president of the choir would always make decisions or whatever. We'd look at each other and say, if I were president, I would da-da-da-da-da. We'd have it all figured out. And so can't you imagine her all along she was thinking it's not as if she woke up one morning and off, all of a sudden off the line is this uh, murderous wretch of a person. She knew what kind of person. So she had time to think about it. And she had time to plan and prepare herself because that's what we do in the face of evil. We figure out how to conquer it and when is the appropriate time. She did not camp out on her worry and her anxiety. She used her imagination and her faith to move her to action to help solve the problem that worry and anxiety would have caused her to be stuck. So when her greatest fear was realized and Athaliah was on the move, she went into the fear response mode. She could fight, flee, or freeze but she had prepared herself for action. 
In the moment facing fear, she moved through it. See, fear can be a good thing. It can motivate us. But fear is intended for short-term survival and not long-term existence. It's intended for just a little while. If you are living in perpetual fear of the thing you wrote down, if you're living in fear of the dreaded thing, you're hurting your body, your mind, and your spirit. And remember this, the mind cannot tell the difference between reality and a vividly imagined thought. Now let's look at ways we face that fear. We can fight it, we can freeze in it, or we can flee. So let's look at, free, uh, at, at fighting it. That's the most well-known. It is an active defense behavior, meaning it needs movement for it to occur. The freeze fear is freezing. It is a well-known reaction, but it's a passive, non-moving defense behavior. And we become immobile. And then flee. It is another active defense behavior, essential for the survival of the face of threat. See, but when we, we know we need to run from a bear that's coming for us, or blow the whistle. See, that's another thing to do. You might freeze and blow the whistle. Y'all know that's the thing to use. You don't have one yet, one, you're going to have so, uh, so, those are the three options. You can fight the threat, you can flee from the situation, you can freeze and stay in place. Each one of them has a place in the face of fear. Of fear. But what Jehoshaphat needed to do in her, the facing her fear was to fight the fear. And which one we use depends on our circumstance. Sometimes we need to freeze for a moment. That's when we take advantage of the gap and we pause and we consider our options. Now, we might not have a long time if we're in the face of real danger. But there is a time where we just need to stop and pause. There's a time when we need to turn away from it. There's a time where we need to flee something that is facing us. It's like, get thee behind me, Satan. That's when we need to flee. And then fighting it is using every part of our being and what God has put in us to fight against something that is facing us. Well, moving beyond the block, how do we do that? How do we move beyond the fear? How do we live fearlessly in a world that is so filled with fear? I think it's important to recognize that fearless people are not people who experience no fear. Fearless people are those who experience fear, but live fearlessly anyway. Let me read that again. Fearless people are those who experience fear, but live fearlessly anyway. You know, I faced all kinds of fear in my, in my life. You know, when a half ton of sheetrock fell on my son, and uh, from the waist down, and broke his pelvis, that was a frightening moment. I had a choice to run from it, freeze in it, or move toward it. My 15-year-old son had the same choice. We moved through it. We ran toward what we feared was happening. You know, if any of you have given birth to a child, were you ever in fear of that moment? Oh, listen, I've lived weeks thinking, okay, 
Um, June 13th, it'll be over. I know I can live for then. Women all over the world have done this. I know I can do it. What's the worst that could happen? I could die and be with Jesus. You know, those are, are fearful moments that we face. Oh, I've climbed towers. Y'all know I've told you stories before. I've climbed towers and looked over and looked down, and then they had to carry me down. I was about to pass out. My son reminded me of we went on a vacation to Myrtle Beach one time, and they had this wonderful uh, uh, water park. And so I said, let's go up. We'll all slide down the slide. And so I started on up, started on up, and it was those open stairways and railings that, that couldn't protect you from anything. And I started up, and I got almost to the top, and I froze. My son said it was one of the most embarrassing moments of his life. <laughs> All the good I've done to be a godly mother. And they come out with those stories. Most embarrassing moment of his life. When they had to have call somebody to come and carry his mama down. I was this far from the top and they had to come and get me and take me down. Yes. I holler and I scream. You know, I went up and kissed the Blarney Stone. But it was an ugly scene. I went through with it. But it was not pretty. Um, so I've cried in moments like that. And you know, we've all, y'all done things like that too. In the face of fear, we do all kinds of things. Oh, years ago, decades ago, <clears throat> I used to sing solos for the Chattanooga Opera Association. And I'd been trained as a singer. I took le lessons from Doris Doe, who was a, had been a singer at the Metropolitan Opera. And I studied and I was prepared. And so I got these parts. I did, one of my favorite was Mercedes in the Opera Carmen. And I had all these parts. And at the same time, I had terrible stage fright. Oh my goodness, it would paralyze me. Um, then, and here's what I would start. I would stand backstage and it was about time for me to go on and I would start telling myself a story. And here's the story. There are 1,700 people out there who've paid a lot of money and they have high expectations for somebody to come out there and perform. And then I'd tell my story. This would be like, there's a big old orchestra out there and they're playing their hearts out. I don't think I'm going to be able to hear my note. So I won't be able to come in with the right note. And then, and then what's going to happen? Oh, and they're so loud, I won't be able to be heard. But we didn't have microphones back then. All these people now biked up and they're, no, we didn't have microphones. I won't be heard. And, and then what will happen? And then I had to redo the story. I had to redo it. And so I had to freeze for a moment. And I had to say, I prepared for this. I have done my training. I have practiced at home. I've practiced with the cast. I was selected for this role. Uh, God has given me a power and an ability to work through anything that I face, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Downbeat, and I'm off and running. And I get out a few notes every time, and then I'm relaxing into the moment. And it was so much fun. It was beautiful. But I had to face that fear. And I had to go through whatever it took for me to get out there instead of running, running out the back door. No, no, that back door, they'll just take you out to the parking lot and just leave. <laughs> but you know what? I decided to fight the fear inside and do what I had prepared to do. Here are five steps that you can do to live fearlessly even when fear is within you. First thing to do is this practical step of pray and meditate. 
Do you know that brain scans and EEG monitoring have shown that praying and meditating can significantly reduce the stress and anxiety that trigger worry? See, there's evidence. <clears throat> Use prayer beads. You know, we make prayer beads in here, and we've made them at the church, and we give them to people who are going through a hard time. You can hold on to those prayer beads and, and help keep your mind and your hands occupied as you pray through your fear. Recognize that fear is natural and normal. It's often present for a reason. Rational fear tells us there's danger and we need to proceed cautiously. So we need to think about the fear we're having. What if you run on your list? Is this rational or is it irrational? See, we have to answer the question. Again, become curious about your fear instead of just accepting it as this is who I am. Become curious about it. Ask yourself, is my fear greater or less than it should be? Am I thinking logically and rationally, or am I becoming irrational and emotionally charged? And then do what you need to do to get back to the even kill, that rational level. Next, bring the fear into the light. Bring it out in the open. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it and stop ruminating over it. See, it takes a lot of mental energy when we ruminate. <clears throat> and it achieves very little. But what it does, if we just hold it inside and just, and just think about it all just inside, then it impairs your ability to problem solve. And the next, identify the source. What is this? What's, what's causing this? What, what is it I'm really fearful about? What is the bottom line? What am I fearful about? What's going on inside of me that is making me feel I can't do what I need to do. What am I afraid will happen? Or what am I afraid will not happen? And then write it down. <clears throat> when you identify it, it's so helpful to write it down, speak it out loud. Uh, writing it forces you to organize and clarify your thoughts. And the act of doing it, when it combine that with reading it back, often makes it possible to see solutions. Write it down. Talk it out. <clears throat> and decide if and how you will be fearless despite the fear. So you get to choose that. <laughs> you get to choose whether you're going to be fearless or not. If you decided that fear is real, but have made the well-thought-out and rational decision to move forward, then keep this in mind. The feeling of fear may still have, have a little ember. <clears throat> it still might glow inside. So just because you decide to step out on the stage and sing with all your heart doesn't mean the fear is not back there just a little bit. If it's not, we've become a little overconfident. So the, the feeling will be there a little bit, and that's okay. Because it, it, it keeps us moving on. It keeps us motivated to continue fighting on. If you're dealing with an ongoing fear, not an emergency situation, that means you have to act early, uh, immediately. Begin doing this. Think about how your life would be without this fear. 
What would you do if you didn't have the fear of it? So I have this horrible fear of snakes. Yeah, y'all brought that up. Horrible fear of snakes. And so if I started thinking about my life without having that fear, see, I see those kids on TV, I'll see some of them that they're about four years old, and they reach up and they have a little snake in their hand, and they're playing with it. And I'm trying to imagine that would ever happen to me. And then I change the channel. <laughs> but try that for you. Then think back to a time when you did something in spite of being afraid. And how did that work? And what process did you go through? Ask yourself, what did I do to overcome the fear before? And how can I apply that to this situation? And then think about this. What are the consequences if I don't go through with what I need to do? What are the consequences? There are usually some. And then, important, create the baby steps to get there. A plan. Put a plan of action. And part of that is don't face that fear alone. Surround yourself with people who can help with your comfort level in these stressful times. Talk about it. Saying those words out loud to somebody else helps make it, but clear it up a little bit. Remember this, a problem shared is a problem halved. A problem shared is a problem halved. H-A-L-P-E-D. And then step into the discomfort. See, just because we, we say we're moving through the fear doesn't mean all of a sudden it's going to be easy to do, real comfortable, and I'm going to be 100% confident I can do this. No, it means that I am going to step in even though I'm uncomfortable. Do it afraid just as Jehoshaphat did. She walked past the fear and did what she needed to do. We want to make a leap of faith and be prepared to learn from what we what just experienced. Because fear is often conquered through both grit and tears, isn't it? It doesn't always look pretty. Use your God-given imagination to solve the problem. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know all of our needs. You want us to step into faith as we move past our fears and that you will do it with us. You will take us by the hand. You will take us from the backside and help push us forward. But you'll also be in the front to catch us. And we thank you for that. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Okay, so.